But I think to some extent the proponents of Brexit were as interested in sovereignty uh, as they were in the economic impact of it. And lots of people who voted for Brexit probably hadn't benefited very much from the EU over the years and so they weren't really bothered about leaving it. But I think on the, on the, to finish on the positive note, I think the, what the proponents would like to see is uh, London turning to Singapore on Thames and would argue we've got many of the attributes necessary for doing so, or even an island. You're listening to IBKR Podcasts. Find more conversations at ibkrpodcasts.com. The following podcast contains options-related material. Prior to listening to today's podcast, all listeners should read and familiarize themselves with the characteristics and risks of standardized options, or ODD, which may be accessed through the link found in the show's notes or podcast description page. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Welcome to our podcast. My name is Guillaume Rouchabert, and our guest today is Keith Hiscock, who is the CEO of Harman & Co. And today's topic is about the UK economy. Welcome, Keith. Thank you. And I will have a couple of questions, and uh, we're going to have a crack at it immediately. Um, So one of the first questions I wanted to ask you, actually, Keith, is that we always hear about the negative impact of Brexit to the UK economy. So uh, could you tell us, like, what are the positive impacts to it and uh, what were the unexpected outcomes? Okay, so uh, my first uh, approach to this would be to quote from a well-known comedian in the UK called Al Murray. Who, uh, who recommends whenever you get asked a question or somebody expresses an opinion about Brexit to say, no, no, it's much more complicated than that. Uh, and I think that's probably the case here. Uh, and I think he'd probably also say, well, it's too soon to say. I think there is uh, there is some academic evidence that says that Brexit has perhaps reduced GDP by 2% or so. Uh, but you're asking, what are the positives about it? So I guess if I were um, on that side of the debate, I'd be saying, Look at how quickly the UK got vaccines through its approval process for for COVID and out into the market. Would we have been able to do it as quickly if we were still in the EU? And I think the proponents of that view would say we'd have had to sign up to some EU initiative and that would have slowed things down. So that would be one positive I think people would talk to. The second one is the ability to sign our own trade treaties. They've been a bit slow coming, frankly. Basically, all we've done is to just roll over uh, the treaties we already had as part of the EU. Next one would be, this is a very particular one, we've got control of our fish stocks, uh, and that certainly has happened. But I think to some extent, the proponents of Brexit were as interested in sovereignty uh, as they were in the economic impact of it. And lots of people who voted for Brexit probably hadn't benefited very much from the EU over the years, and so they weren't really bothered about leaving it. But I think on the, on the, to finish on the positive note, I think the, what the proponents would like to see is uh, London turning to Singapore on Thames and would argue we've got many of the attributes necessary for doing so, or even an island. You say, what are the unexpected outcomes? Well, I think we're all surprised about how difficult it has been to resolve the Northern Ireland protocol and to get that working. But I think both sides are probably now of a mind to get that and everything else working rather better. We've gone through that period of where where people are angry at each other. 
um, whatever side of the debate you might be on, where governments were angry with each other. And I think particularly with the Ukraine war going on, I think we're all minded to say, well, actually, there's a much bigger principle here at stake. And let's just try and sort these things out. So there were some unexpected outcomes. I think it was largely in Northern Ireland. I think overall, it's probably too soon to say what the positive, what the full positive impacts are. But what people were looking for was sovereignty and to create Singapore on Thames. Understood. Uh, yeah, that's a very interesting perspective. I just uh, wanted to rebound on what you just say with uh, maybe like to play a bit of a devil's advocate. As we know, the IMF expects the UK economy to shrink in 2023 and to be even worse than Russia. That was the quote. And what would you keep and what would you be cautious about uh, the uh, IMF conclusions? Well, so first of all, I think for all economies, the outlooks are getting better as we move forward. So, you know, the Bank of England at uh, the beginning of February revised their view uh, to say that the economy wasn't going to shrink as far as they previously said, and that the recession wouldn't go on as long. So all the revisions are getting more positive. It is certainly true that the UK has suffered more. We can argue about why that is. So if you're a Labour politician, you're going to say it's because of the you know, Conservative Party's policies. But I think you've also got to bear in mind that the UK is a different kind of economy to many European ones in the sense that it's got a much bigger service sector. So, for example, tourism is a bigger percentage of, uh, of the economy. Legal services, all those sorts of things are bigger percentages of the economy. So, so there are some different things. So, so uh, whilst obviously it's completely valid to compare the UK with these other economies, there are you know, particularly good reasons why it might perform uh, on a different path. Understood. Uh, and it's great that you mentioned about the Bank of England. So I'd like to drill down a bit on this and to talk about, of course, interest rates, as it seems there is a strong consensus around the Bank of England, indeed keeping the rates very high. Is that also your view and, and why? OK, so beginning of February, the Bank of England raised rates, the, the base rate, as they call it, by another half percent to four percent. I think the general feeling is this might be the last uh, increase. There might be one more, but that's about it. And that, that's a message the Bank of England's giving out. So I, I think we are pretty close to the top. And, and obviously, interest rates have an impact over time. It, it's, it's wrong to measure their immediate impact because there are lots of people that are insulated from it for a while. So, for example, if you've got a fixed rate deal for two years for your uh, mortgage, then today's interest rate, yesterday's interest rate, tomorrow's interest rate rises won't make any difference until you get to the end of that two year period. You know, there's a danger in being too aggressive on pushing rates up. So I think the Bank of England is feeling that we're pretty close to it, the top now. There might be a little bit further to go. How quickly does it, are they going to cut it? Well, I think at the moment that is very much dependent on how quickly you can get inflation down. You know, they're going to want to see that coming down. Now, we've seen a peak. And we've seen a small decrease in deflation in the UK so far. I think quite critical to it is what happens to labour rates. So there's a labour shortage in the UK, which is partly a reflection of Brexit. But there are also quite a lot of strikes in the public sector, which the government and employers are resisting at the moment. I think the government's fear, perfectly validly, is that if we give everybody a 10% pay rise, then inflation next year is going to be 10% again. 
So they're going to want to see, I think the Bank of England and the government are going to want to see their way through that before cutting rates. They're going to want to see inflation falling away. And if, if anything, that might take longer than many people think. Indeed, right. Yeah, and it's true we were thinking like uh, strikes were something from the continental Europe, but we see that it also expands quite much in the UK. Um, to come back on your point regarding the interest rates and the mortgage, of course, which is very linked and correlated, would you be able to explain a little bit more and describe the landscape of the real estate industry in the UK, its main players and its uh, current market trends? Okay, so historically, um, UK property has been very attractive to overseas investors because there's a very stable, solid legal basis to it. If you look at what's quoted in, on the London stock market, there are two broad groups. There's, there's, a, there's a group of companies that are fairly generalist, and then I'll come on to some specialists. So if I look at the biggest players, so there's a business called Segro, which has got a market cap of 10 billion and which is about two thirds in the UK and a third in Europe. And essentially it's in warehouses and distribution assets. Obviously, investors have become quite interested in that space as the importance of online purchasing has grown in the UK. Obviously, Amazon's the biggest player in that market. Next one I'd look at is a company called Unite. It's got a market cap of four billion pounds and it specializes in student accommodation in the UK. So the UK is one of the most attractive places for students from around the world to come to to get a degree, partly because of those degrees, partly because it improves their uh, their English, which is important in many environments. And this company provides accommodation to 70,000 students. That's a way of playing the growth in higher education in the UK and its attractiveness overseas. The next one I'd look at is a business called British Land, 4 billion. It's a generalist property company. So it's got offices, retail parks, it owns, you might know, Broadgate in the, in the city of London. A similar size is Land Securities, and this is another generalist. So it's got leisure assets, retail assets, retail parks, bit of office space, yeah, uh, all, all that kind of stuff. So, so there are those quite large, uh, some of them quite generalist things. And then we come to the world of REITs, real estate investment trusts. And there is a whole range of specialisms here, some of which I think uh, are unique to the UK. So, for example, there are some, I'll, I'll call them funds because that's effectively what they are. There are funds that specialise in general practitioner surgeries, doctor surgeries. So they own the surgery and they rent them to a consortium of doctors to use. There's a big growth going on in that space because our National Health Service wants to encourage doctors to move into better purpose built facilities. There are still quite a lot of doctors who are working out an old Victorian house, for example. So the attractions of, of that area are the fact that the government is effectively the tenant and many of these are inflation proofed. So, so that's that's one area. We've got some businesses that specialise in owning uh, supermarkets that are let out to supermarket groups. Uh, we've seen a boom in uh, warehouse and logistics specialists. It's coming off the top because the boom in online retailing, um, you know, now that COVID is over in the UK and across Europe, uh, you know, that's sort of quietening down. We've got funds that specialise in social housing. 
So that's housing let out to either people who would have lived in government owned accommodation or people who are vulnerable, uh, you know, they might have mental health issues or things like that. And again, that's backed by the government. We've got funds that specialise in ground rent. So in the UK, we have this distinction between freeholders and leaseholders for some properties. And the freeholder collects a ground rent and owns the property. And when the lease runs out, you know, a lease could be from starting from 100 years to 999 years. It reverts, all of it reverts to the freeholder. We've got some funds in the UK that specialise in uh, nursing homes or care homes. There's a couple of those. They build and own a care home that is then let out for, for, for old people to live in when they can't live at home any longer. And then we've got some regional funds. So, you know, there's a fund specialising in property in Germany. There's a fund specialising in property in Macau. Uh, there are lots of little specialisms. So there's a whole range of things there. You know, some investors want to say, I'd like, I'd like to have a broad exposure to property. So a land securities with leisure, uh, retail, retail parks, that sort of thing might be appropriate. Others say, well, actually, I'd like to really drill down and just own things that are rented out to the government. So I'd like to buy companies that have got GP surgeries, for example. So there's a, there are lots of options. Um, about uh, you know for, for, for investors depending on which way they want to go. Excellent. That's that's really interesting to uh, know a little bit more and in uh, in depth uh, insight on this uh, real estate uh, industry in the in the UK and related a bit like to the industry. Of course, one of the uh, impact that could be uh, generated is the tax change. Given that you have a brand new prime minister who is like clearly oriented to develop the economy and uh, claim like many times that he, he will be there to kind of like slow down the increase of the tax or maybe like a, a cut on the tax. Do you still foresee a significant increase in tax in the coming month? No, not not under not under this uh, uh, prime minister and chancellor. I think we've had you know we, we we we've just had a round of tax increases. I think that's it. Uh, and those tax increases were largely freezing of thresholds. It's something something economists call fiscal drag. So, for example, there's an amount of income you can earn uh, in the UK free of tax, twelve and a half thousand, basically, and that would normally go up in line with inflation. But it's not going to go up in line with inflation this year. So more people are going to be caught paying some tax. That's, as I say, that's called fiscal drag. So that's largely what it is. In fact, what the Chancellor is, um, is our, what we call our finance minister. What he is signalling is that the next move is going to be down. And there's a there's a political reason for that. We have to have a general election by January 2025. In reality, it's probably going to be in the autumn of 2024. And so it would make a lot of political sense to cut taxes in the spring of 2024. So that that has some impact, makes people feel better, has an impact by the autumn of that year, and that helps the chances of the Conservative government getting re-elected. I think that's what is probably going to happen, and that's certainly what the Chancellor's signalling. Understood. Uh, that, that, that's great. Maybe I'd like to talk about a, a little bit like a different industry, which is maybe less impacted by tax than the real estate industry. That's the law and legal services industry in the uh, in the UK, which is very well represented 
uh, amongst the listed companies on the London Stock um, Exchange. Could you give us a little bit more insight on the specific sector because that's a bit of a UK specificities um, and uh, uh, could you provide some interesting uh, insight on this uh, on, on this industry please? Well, William, yeah. So um, in all countries, law is quite an important industry, but in pretty well every country, it's very difficult for investors to participate in because most law firms are partnerships owned by their own partners and there's no option for investors to invest in it. If we, if we step back, the legal services market globally is growing faster than GDP. If you were to do a look at a correlation between a wealth of a country and its legal services, you'd find the wealthier you get, the bigger the percentage of the GDP is accounted for by law firms. There's a, and there's a particular reason why London is most interesting, because London is probably the centre of the international legal services space. And there are lots of cases that are in reality have happened outside London that end up being tried and settled in London. And, and, and it's because people trust what happens, you know, there's no corruption around it, etc. So London's a very important space. It's only in the last, I guess, 10 years that you've been able to invest in law services in London. You can do a little bit of it in Australia. You can do a little bit of it in the US. Essentially, it fall, uh, the, the sorts of things you can invest in fall into two parts. There are legal service firms. So these are solicitors or attorneys, you might call them in other countries. And you can now invest in them. And you know, London has got firms such as DWF, Knights Group, Gately quoted. There are several of them. They've got slightly different business models. So Gately is a kind of quite a generalist service. Uh, Knights Group is more of lots of high street uh, lawyers. So, so that's one area that you can invest in. And so Gately's got quite a bias towards the corporate space. And then the other area that you can invest in is in the cases themselves. So it is possible to buy a stake in a law case through a litigation funder. So what has happened is that if you're if you're a partner in a law firm, you might have a case that could take 10 years before it's going to be settled. And it might be that your client says, well, actually, I can't afford to pay you along the way. I'd rather give you a share of the outcome if we win. The difficulty with that, of course, is that if you're the if you're the lawyer, you've got costs and expenses along the way. You know, the children need new shoes, don't they? And so you can't really finance that. Um, or you might or you're unwilling to finance that. Well, there are a group of firms that can now provide finance for that sort of thing. So the best known one probably is Burford Capital. So if you invest in Burford Capital, what you're doing is investing in court cases. You're taking the view that the people that run Burford Capital and decide what court cases to invest in are experts in this field and they can understand what are the chances of this case succeeding? And if it were to succeed, what are the chances of getting the money off the other side? That's that's their specialisation. And Burford, so what Burford Capital does is it provides funding for these cases along the way. So the solicitor gets paid, but in return, the solicitor gives up his right for that share of the fee at the end. So th this is a very interesting asset for some investors because the success of Burford Capital has nothing to do with what's going on in the stock market. 
or the economy or bond markets or anything else like that. Its success depends upon it finding cases, making the right decision to invest in the ones that are most likely to win and then collecting the money at the end. So uh, investors think of that as an uncorrelated asset, i.e. it's not correlated to the economy or the stock market or anything like that. That's a very interesting asset to have. There's another one rather smaller than Burfa Capital. I mean, Burfa Capital's market cap's about just under £2 billion. Uh, another example would be a business called Manalay or Manalit, some people might pronounce it. This does the same sort of thing, but this is a specialist essentially in liquidation. So when a company goes under and the receivers are called in to wind it up, there are sometimes people who've got a claim and say that the company or its management have done something wrong. So, you know, a typical example would be that they've bought an asset, let's say they bought a brand new Rolls Royce and then sold it to themselves at 10% of the cost at the expense of the business. And so what Manalit will do is pursue them for that money or they might have, you know, so it's, it's not uncommon, for example, for a business the owners of a business, rather than take a salary or remuneration to make themselves a loan. Uh, and in doing so, they postpone paying any income tax and something they might even avoid it, but they can't. When that company goes under, the management or the directors sometimes think, oh, well, uh, the company's gone under, therefore I don't need to repay the loan. Well, no, that's not the case. And so what Manalink does is to pursue those claims. Now, again, its success is related to those claims, you know, how, you know, are they going to win it, uh, et cetera. But there's a difference here between Burford Capital and Manalink. So Burford Capital has quite a lot of long period cases that throws up the issue about how, you know, if a case is going to take, let's say, 10 years to settle, how do you value it along the way? Uh, Manalink specialising in this space, typically these cases take nine months to resolve. So there's less of that issue. So, so it's another uh, litigation funder, but it's in a, in a very specialist area. So, so there's lots of different options to go. And, you know, these different sorts of businesses have got different investment attributes so that the investor has the choice of deciding which way he wants to go. But most importantly, it gives the investor the opportunity to invest in legal services, which is pretty well impossible to investing in, in, in most other markets. Indeed, absolutely. And uh, it, it's quite impressive to see how diversified this, uh, this industry is. Well, um, we are reaching the end of our, our podcast, so I just wanted to thank you, Keith, uh, for joining uh, today. I, I think we have uh, several takeaways for today about the uh, UK economy, uh, a topic that deserves more attention. Especially, it seems we are probably seeing our last increase of uh, rates from the Bank of England, uh, as, as you said. And uh, thank you for providing great insight on the legal and uh, and, and law services and uh, have some information also about the health-related real estate. Uh, thanks for listening also to our audience and uh, more to come on ibkr.com. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me, Graham. Cheers. Bye. Thank you, Keith. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Thanks for listening to IBKR Podcasts. As always, we have more episodes at ibkrpodcasts.com. And if you're interested in learning more about interactive brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education material, such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, financial and economic commentary at tradersinsight.news, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, 
and quant-related articles at idkrquant.com. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry, or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and is necessary seek professional advice. Alternative investments can be highly illiquid or speculative and may not be suitable for all investors. Investing in alternative investments is only for experienced and sophisticated investors who have a high risk tolerance. Investors should carefully review and consider potential risks before investing. Significant risks may include but are not limited to the loss of all or a portion of an investment due to leverage, lack of liquidity, volatility of returns, restrictions on transferring of interests in a fund, lower diversification, complex tax structures, reduced regulation, and higher fees.